1: Libby is off today. Nice to have you with me here after the long weekend. Some of you may still be enjoying an extended Easter weekend. It is Easter Monday. Well, we're going to focus in on the COVID vaccine rollout. And the good news is that Toronto residents as young as 60 may now receive the COVID vaccine at the growing number of mass vaccination clinics. And people as young as 50 may get their shots if they live in COVID hot zones. But the bad news is that essential workers under 50 are not yet included in the rollout, and the uptake of the vaccine in adults over 80 is lower than what was expected with many of these individuals still needing their first shots. This is topic number one as we welcome Fightback's Monday Zoomer Squad. David Kravitz is Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President at Zoomer Media. Bill Van Gorder is Interim Chief Policy Officer of CARP. And Peter Mugrich is Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine. Hello, gentlemen.
2: Hi, Jane. Hi, Jane. Hi, everyone.
1: Bill, we'll start with you. You've learned through a study that fewer than 50% of people over 80 outside of nursing homes have been vaccinated in neighborhoods that have reported the highest infection rates since the start of the pandemic. That seems alarming.
3: It really is uh, alarming. And uh, uh, to, to think that they, you know, so many of them have not been that there's now vaccine left over, so we're moving into the uh, younger age groups. And what kind of focus is being put on trying to find out why those people aren't being uh, vaccinated? We know that the rates, even in long-term care homes, are not as high as they should be. So it, it's very, very concerning, after all the, the uh, requests to make sure the older folks got uh, vaccinated first, now uh, they're either staying away or being ignored in droves.
1: And by the way, if you'd like to get in on this conversation, if you have some first-hand knowledge of individuals over 80 uh, who have yet to receive their first dose, we'd like to know why, what the challenges are, what is going on in that particular situation. Numbers to call, 416- 360-0740, toll-free, 1-866- 744- 740. So, as a synopsis. The parts of Ontario hit hardest by COVID-19 are the same places where vaccine uptake among the elderly is lowest. Um, David, you have discovered, um, I mean, it's we know that language and ethnicity are barriers to get the vaccine, but you've really drilled down on what's happening here.
4: Well,
2: I think that it's a, it, it is an issue because if you look at the areas where there is no pronounced barrier. The, it isn't just that it's less than 50% of those over 80. It's as high as 70% in certain neighborhoods, and it's down below 50 in other neighborhoods. And that's the swing that I looked at. And if you take all the languages except French, because that's so top-heavy in Quebec, but um, I looked at some research that took every language other than English, um, starting with Italian, Portuguese, German, Greek, uh, all uh, Cantonese, Mandarin, uh, Hindi, or all like 15 different languages. You, lump, you can lump them all together. And about just under 7% of Canadians will speak one of those languages most often at home. Okay. And in Ontario, perhaps not surprisingly, it jumps to about 7.5%, about 20% more than Canada. But in Metro, it's almost 12%. It's almost double the percentage of Canadians. So you have... Upwards of 700,000 households in Toronto who, when they wake up in the morning, English is not the first words, uh, you know, the first language that they use. And there, there is some evidence that there is a correlation between uh, communities that are heavily uh, immigrant or, or not uh, fluent in English and either the reluctance or the barrier. Perhaps they haven't found out the information yet. Um, there's definitely a correlation there, and it's uh, very alarming.
1: So would it be fair to say that in those 700,000 households, uh, the majority of them, uh, if they have an elderly person in those households, has not been vaccinated?
2: Well, I, I don't know whether I can prove that, but if you think back, Jane, to the conversations we've had here in previous weeks at how difficult it was to get information logged on the websites down. There's instructions that are different. They're vaccinating one group here, but they're not vaccinating that same group there. We've complained about the fragmentary communication and the, the miscommunication and all of us totally fluent, totally able to get whatever information we want. Now, now impose that regime on a community where, uh, English isn't the native language, and particularly among elderly, they may have trouble understanding it or getting their getting their hands on the right information, may not know where to look, may not know
1: how to interpret it. Uh, it's definitely a problem. Peter, what are your thoughts on this issue?
5: Well, I think, I mean, David's obviously touched on the main reason, um, but there's also the technology gap that, um, you know, we a lot of us just take for granted. We can go online and book an appointment, and and that's no problem, you know. But um, you know, a, a lot of seniors uh, don't even have computers, mm-hmm. and a lot—if they do—they use it for very basic uh, reasons: email or, you know, perhaps Facebook at the most. And and they're just not able to navigate the technology involved to get their uh, to book their appointment if they've been overlooked by their doctor or um, one of these random uh, mobile units. So. So as, as well as language, uh, tech, uh, technology is, is imposing a huge uh, burden here on, on, the, um, on those who haven't been vaccinated yet.
1: David, I'm wondering, you know, with the hotline number that's uh, for the entire province, one if you speak a different language and you pick up the phone and you dial that number, I'm wondering, do you have any options to speak any other language but English?
2: I don't, I don't know. I don't yeah. want to give a you know a glib answer. But again, I would point out that in past weeks on this show, we've heard from people who said, I went online and I deliberately stayed online for an hour because I didn't want to lose my place, or I phoned and I stayed on the phone. Um, people were having to work hard in previous weeks to get an appointment booked or to find out where, where they could book an appointment. Uh, in the early going, it was a challenge for people who are, totally fluent in english and and reasonably you know mm-hmm. computer literate
1: well here's example Here's an example of that. Uh, I have a stat here. More than, if you look at York region, more than 40,000 doses have been given to people 80 plus, representing 82.5% of residents in this age bracket. Now, I don't know, um, in terms of first language, uh, what that percentage of over 80s would be, but it seems to me that is a very strong uptake in the region of York. David.
2: It is a strong uptake, and but you know one of the things I think we got to always keep in mind in these discussions, not just about COVID, it's a function of really what we talk about at Zoomer all the time. It, you have many more people living much longer, so the the population of what used to be called elderly is growing and growing and growing, such that even a minority segment represents a a lot of people, and it's not unusual now to see. This group segmenting into those that are very uh, computer savvy, able to get an appointment, got the appointment, got the information, others not. You're going to get big numbers in both groups now because the total is so big.
1: Well, I guess the the solution here is how to get these people immunized who have not yet gotten a shot. And I have to say, I interviewed uh, one of the organizers at the Thorncliffe Park Vaccination Center last week where they have... They have a lot of different cultures and languages happening in that part of Toronto. It's coordinated by Michael Guerin Hospital and the city of Toronto. And they seem to be doing an excellent job of uh, bringing people in and helping them get there to get their vaccines. Bill, your thoughts on that and, and what I, needs I, to be done?
3: Yeah, Jane, you're, you're right. And what we're hearing from our CART members is there's a real inconsistency for those people who are getting the information and and getting it well and getting their vaccine, they're very happy with the whole system. It seems to be quite smooth, but for those who are not, it's exactly the the opposite. And much of that is due to both the systems that are different uh, from community to community and the way that it's being communicated to, uh, uh, to older adults right across, right across the province. And the the key once again is that, uh, communication, and uh, uh, we keep asking at CARP, when will our, our government communications people realize that, as Peter pointed out, uh, you know, Facebook and online and Google are not the the way that you uh, communicate with most older older adults. And some some parts of the province are doing well at this; others are doing a terrible job. And and they don't seem to learn or take uh, uh, take advice because we've been talking about this kind of poor communication for years, not just
2: during the months of COVID. Now you and say, can I, can I just yes. sorry, Jane? Can I, um, I? I wanted to put a shout out to Mark Guerin because just by circumstance, that's where I got my first shot, and it was a well-oiled machine. It was wonderful, but they had two seats. So the person getting the shot could come alone or could be accompanied by someone. And then a big space, another two seats, and hundreds and hundreds of these pairings of seats, and they wheeled up a cart to where you were sitting and gave your shot right there. And I saw a great number of people uh, who were elderly. I wasn't at that time looking out for ethnicity particularly, but a a large number were accompanied by a a younger uh, person who was not getting a shot. So they were set up to accommodate you if you... Uh, you know, had your child or your you know, nephew, whoever, bringing you in for your shot, they were totally set up for that.
5: But and, David, and... that's an interesting point because um, so many people, so many elderly people, don't have a nephew to bring them in, yes. and they yes. and they're housebound, and um, they're not getting the information. They don't, uh, you know, they don't have any family member to sort of interpret what, what they have to do next, and and they're just sort of. Uh, falling off the, uh, you know, slipping through the cracks in a way. And and the only way to get to them, I suppose, is through these door-to-door knocking campaigns and, and mobile uh, health units and connecting with groups like Meals on Wheels and charities and finding out who the elderly are, identifying them, and getting the vaccines to them. And and that's a huge logistical problem.
1: Well, and it takes a lot longer. The process for those individuals who need to have the vaccine delivered to them, whether it's through a community organization, this is not going to happen in the first couple of weeks like it has for those people who are able to access the Internet, even call the hotline number and set up appointments. Uh, We'd love to hear your stories. If any of this is ringing true for you, relatives, loved ones, friends who've had challenges getting the COVID shot, especially those who are older and perhaps frail and housebound. What kind of efforts have been made to get them their vaccines? Numbers to call are 416-360-0740. Toll-free, 1-866-744-740. It's the Monday Zoomer Squad. David and Bill and Peter here with Jane in for Libby. Let's talk about the young Zoomers, Also at high risk, increasingly more at high risk because of the more contagious and serious variants of the virus. The essential workers in factories who don't have paid sick leave. Uh, we've been hearing the stories. If you've been listening to Zoomer Radio News yesterday and today, Dr. Warner, Dr. Michael Warner at Michael Guerin says we need to change our vaccination effort to reflect on what is happening in the third wave. So and I'll get our squad's comments on this. He's suggesting vaccines be brought to areas where people are dying. He's calling for rapid testing for every congregate factory with more than 10 employees, paid sick leave, and a full stay-at-home order in the greater Toronto-Hamilton area. Bill, I'll start with you, your reaction to what Dr. Warner and others in critical care uh, who are saying very similar sentiments.
3: Yeah, uh, very much so. And, you know, one of the things that he pointed out, and, and other provinces are doing it, very successfully, and that's having more rapid testing, more on-site testing, so people can find out right away whether or not they they have the virus or they're they're carrying it. This is one of the things in Ontario we've been really slow about uh, rolling out and and doing. And the problem with with those kinds of settings and the younger uh, Zoomers that you're talking about, uh, they're working is still working in these uh, uh, places, and they also often tend to come for communities where uh, there are many more of them living in the same household, uh, sharing them. So they're they're at very, uh, very high risk. And, you know, we talk about congregate settings. We understand that long-term care homes need to be given a priority. People living in similar kinds of conditions, uh, but in the community need to have the same kind of focus. And we seem to have forgotten them in most parts of the province.
1: David Kravit, your thoughts? Well, I think Bill's right. I think that this
2: is an area, especially with the variants coming in, um, you know, what are we doing about that? But the problem I'm struggling with is that, once again, we're juggling multiple variables without any real clarity about, you know, what the big picture is. For example, I noticed that in uh, early February, mid-February, they were getting 70 deaths 74, 68, 71, 80 per day in Ontario. Now, fatalities I'm talking about, not just infections. Mm -hmm. And now it's in the 20s. Yes. So if you wanted to be complacent, you could say, yeah, there's more contagion. But the the mortality rate for this virus remained at about, you know, 2%. And we've we've successfully, uh, I'm not saying we have, but we are successfully treating those most vulnerable. So That would be a cause for optimism. On the other hand, the infection rates, the case rates are going way up. That would be a cause for alarm. Which is it? And then how are you juggling both? And how are you prioritizing both? Should you vaccinate a younger worker as long as there are still seniors left uh, unvaccinated? Should you switch your focus? and then the third leg of that terrible stool which I don't envy the the authorities is how many vaccines do you have and how many are coming in are they arriving on time how fast you're going to get them there's already disputes in Ontario as you know uh, Ottawa's complaining it didn't get enough of the allocation Toronto's getting too many how many are we going to have um there's just they're juggling so many unknowns here it's very difficult to um you know, arrive at a firm conclusion, in in my opinion.
1: And, and Peter, you know, I'm wondering, too, is there, and I think there definitely is, an element of ageism here where we are becoming more alarmed by the younger people who are dying than potentially we were, at least the government was, during the first and second waves when it came to long-term care deaths.
5: Right, and and uh, the... um you know and and we've seen in these numbers in, in the uh, fatalities that david was pointing out that um in like uh, fewer and fewer older people are are dying for in in the later waves because they've received uh, their full vaccination that uh, nursing home home patients have so um in, and and again to 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 echo david like it's a good news bad news situation yes we've we've uh, looked after the vulnerable in nursing homes now, but no, we're, we're not protecting frontline workers or, or younger people. And, uh, and, you know, it, it's just a, uh, it's it's a total um, case of waiting for vaccines. And this kind of angst is going to keep going on and on until we get enough people shots into arms. Right. And, uh, you know, whether it's ageism or whether it's just it's just anxiety it, it, it's a difficult question but well the uh, virus we get is
1: the virus it? is morphing too right you yeah. never know which way it's going to turn
5: yeah new variants and uh, so um, you know the the new head of the vaccine task force in Ontario has a uh, huge job cut out for him.
1: Uh, we do have some calls. Uh, Zoomer Squad members: David Kravitz, Bill Van Gorder, uh, Peter Muggridge, Mugger- Jane Brown for Libby Snyman. Let's go to Murray and Malton. Do you have a question or comment, Murray?
2: Hi, Jane. Yeah, I do.
6: Uh, the red white uh, health card uh, when AstraZeneca came out, Doug Ford said we could use it, so I got mine because I'm. All, I get between 60 and 64, uh, my health unit actually called me in for it. But he said there's uh, a large number, I was actually amazed at how many people just in
1: Ontario that don't have the photo ID. Uh, And so were you able to get your vaccine?
6: Yes, I was, because he said it's okay to get the the shot with the old health card.
1: Right. And uh, how long ago did you receive the AstraZeneca? Was two weeks yesterday. Two weeks, yeah. I just got mine uh, yesterday. Everybody, <laughs> congratulations! Thank you. Yes, I was. I was quite thrilled when they dropped the age to fifty-five. So uh, my husband and I got ours yesterday. So Marie, you
6: know, I'm, uh, I'm not particularly worried about it because I stay safe. Yeah, I, mean, I don't go anywhere if it's crowded. Uh, and I walk through parking lots instead of on the sidewalk. So, uh, but how many people? How many of these older people like? I rebelled against it. And uh, Doug Ford said there's all kinds of people that rebelled against it. How many people are over the 65 age group?
1: What do you mean they rebelled against it? Going to get the photo ID card. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. We we're supposed to have that like 10 years ago, 20 right. years ago. Right. Um, does anybody know? Uh, Bill, are you familiar with uh, the process around the red and white, the ancient uh, health cards that we have here in Ontario?
3: I don't know where we're at at this point, no.
1: Yeah. I, I w- would be a very small number that are left, because I, I'm...
5: I, I actually have a red-white one still. Do yeah. you really, Peter? Yeah, yeah. I've I never <laughs> called in to get a new
1: one. So. Okay.
5: Yeah.
1: And, and you are too young still to get your uh, AstraZeneca shot. Right. Yes. yes. Yeah. Well, you'll see, I guess, when uh, your age group comes <laughs> <Yeah>. up.
7: <laughs> <laughs> I'll
5: be a guinea pig for that
7: one. Yeah. yeah.
1: Okay, let's go to Mel in Bradford. Hi, Mel, you're on Fight Back.
7: Hi, it's Mel Atkins. I live in Bradford. I'm 85, and my my wife is uh, 85. Yes. she be. She's not quite. She's two months or something short of it. But she has the immune immune problem two ways. She has COPD, and she has Crohn's disease. So, we've been, we tried to get in there. Um, on the phone, I couldn't get through. I'm not computer savvy. I can get in and I can operate it, but I'm not, you know, really good at it. Anyway, for two days I tried, and then finally my kids got me in there. Now the problem is, we are going there. I just found out that Astrazeneca vaccine. Uh, we're a bit concerned about it because one of our local stores, the lady that works runs the place, her mother was taken into. I think it was Humber Memorial. And they gave her the shot without even talking to her or her two sons. And she's mad as hell because she died two days later, and she believes it was from the shot. Okay, well, I
1: I can only go by the research, and thank you, Mel, for your call, and I'm glad you got your shot. I can only go by the research that we've had from the top experts in the country, and it was reiterated by the pharmacist who gave me my AstraZeneca shot yesterday that there has not been a single case of blood clotting uh, in Canada with the AstraZeneca vaccine. So, uh, David, in terms of that, it's it's it would be zero risk so far in Canada. I can't speak to that particular horrible situation he was referencing. No,
2: no. And, and I think that, uh, to be fair to the gentleman, we have to, you know, not try to play doctor over the phone here. Sure. But you're right. The research is that there is zero risk. And I think that we do have to be respectful of, Um, you know, what the latest research is on all of these situations. It is fast changing. We can't expect them to know what they don't know, uh, you know, until there's more data. And I think they've tried to be, uh, you know, fairly responsible. And unfortunately, it's been contradictory again, in that some jurisdictions have cut it off, have restricted it, have not restricted it. So the messaging has been very mixed on this. uh, And it's not been as clear, as you just said, or as unambiguous, as you just said. And I can understand, uh, you know, reservations. I know people who are on the cusp, who have deliberately waited um, until they could get an appointment for Pfizer or Moderna, having been able to get uh, an appointment for Me too. Africa.
1: Yeah, I do too. Yeah. Let's go to Margaret in Niagara Falls. Margaret, what's on your mind?
4: Hi, Jane. Uh, I just wanted to let you know, my daughter-in-law, who's a germaphobe, she lives in Fort Erie, she's 42, knows she'd have to wait an awful long time to get her shot here. Uh, she's an American citizen. She phoned a friend on Saturday who phoned her doctor. The doctor called her back and said, be there on Monday at 10 o'clock and we'll get you a and j My son just called me and let me know she's had it. Um, she had to pay for her uh, pretest to cross the border. Okay, But that just goes, something wrong with our system. If she doesn't even live there anymore, she can just make one phone call and get her shot.
1: Because she's an American citizen. Exactly. Well, I, I all do it get cost that. Her was, yeah. All it cost her was the
4: pretesting, Right. Other than that, she gets to visit her family for a date, but she has to self-quarantine when she comes back for two weeks.
1: Right. That's the only catch, and she... she's fake. She's got to follow the rules. Well, I mean, you have to, honestly, I think through this whole process, you have to advocate for yourself. I mean, it really does come down to that. When I was uh, booking the appointment for myself and my husband, I called a bunch of independents, uh, independent pharmacies on Thursday. And on Saturday, the phone calls started coming in because I figured if I go to one of the bigger... Uh, the bigger drug stores, I may end up waiting or get lost in the system a bit. So that seemed to work out well. But again, it's, you do, you have to be your own, your own advocate. So that is very, uh, interesting information that an American living by the border in Canada could cross the border at the age of 42 and get the shot and then come back and isolate. Two more topics, uh, Zoomer Squad, before I let you go. Um, time is getting away from us here. Let's talk about Dr. Homer Tien as the new chair of the covid Vaccine Task Force. And just to give you a little bit of background, so he is the replacement for the retired General Rick Hillier. Dr. Tien is CEO and President of Orange Air Ambulance and has been part of the Vaccine Task Force since it was established, primarily working on getting the vaccine into northern Ontario First Nations communities and fly-in communities. I'll go around the table. Uh, Bill, what are your thoughts on Dr. Tien?
3: I think it's a good choice. Uh, uh, Hillier was uh, a fine person, a good military man, but he didn't understand the medical system. Our medical system is messy. It's hard to manage. It's very bureaucratic. We now have someone who lives within and understands that system, and I'm looking for better things.
1: Okay, and Peter?
3: Yeah, I
5: I echo those. I mean, he's got an enormous job ahead of him, especially with all this controversy over you know uh frontline workers getting vaccinated or uh ahead of um vulnerable groups but uh you know he's a doctor he's uh, he's had um experience with um you know uh, battlefield medicine he's um used to the bureaucracy orange is a incredibly bureaucratic uh body so uh Um, Hopefully the politicians will give him some space and he can do a good job.
1: And David, what do you think about Dr. Tian as a successor? I have uh,
2: no reason to disagree at all with my colleagues. I think it's a good choice. He's certainly familiar with the system. And that's going to be the trick to take the system that's there now and make it do what it's supposed to do.
1: Uh, one final uh, topic, and we don't need to spend a whole lot of time on this, but uh, it is becoming a bigger and bigger deal. The price of real estate, particularly around the, G- the GTA, uh, year over year, as uh, everybody who's in touch with the news realizes or knows that the prices have increased fifteen percent in Toronto, February over February, and. There is a call by an expert, David Rosenberg, former chief economist at Merrill Lynch, saying that this all reminds him of 2006, just before the U.S. housing market entered a bubble that ended in disaster. He's calling on the federal government to put cooling measures in place. Uh, The reason why I bring this up with the Zoomer squad is because this is a great seller's market if you are an empty nester and you're downsizing, Bill.
3: Absolutely, it is, and and should concern people in terms of the decision. A lot of people are holding off making a selling decision till we come to the end of the uh, COVID pandemic, and now they're beginning to wonder, should I do something first? Is this going to happen? I think what we have to remind ourselves is that the Canadian banking and mortgage system is much different than it was in the States uh, when their bubble burst. So, uh, I'd look more market uh, trends in Canada itself rather than comparing to what happened
1: in the states a few da- years ago. David, what do you think about this?
2: Well, I've been hearing the prediction of this bubble for twenty plus years, yeah. so I'm not an expert, and I just, like I always says I, it's not a, it's a, it's an old story. But I would point out that it's much more complicated for empty nesters uh, than if you're just flipping a house or buying the next biggest house because you're. You're in your forties and you your kids are getting older. Where are you going to move to? and how much equity is uh, stranded in your property that you can convert into cash? and if you cash out and you you're're you know very wealthy on paper, where do you go next? So there's a lot of decisions that have to be made around the next stage, and I think that may a cause a little bit of a—it wouldn't be as automatic that everybody's rushing for the exits all at once.
1: Right. Not everybody, Peter, is moving into a condo, I guess, right? <laughs>
5: right. And, and you know, Gene, as long as interest rates stay low, this is going to be an issue. So— uh You know, they can talk about cooling measures and and whatnot, but uh, uh, until the bank uh, budgets its rate up, um, we're going to have a a, a frenzy in the housing market.
1: All right. We'll hit that topic again. I thank you all for your time, as usual, our Monday Zoomer squad. Thanks, guys.
7: Thanks, Jane. Thank you, Jane.
1: David Kravitz is Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President at Zoomer Media. Bill Van Gorder, Interim Chief Policy Officer of CARP. And Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine. Also, we had a request uh, to give out the hotline number again to book a COVID-19 appointment in this province, in the province of Ontario. its nine 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 six four eight eight. 999 1-888-999-6488. Triple eight, triple nine, sixty four, eighty eight. Coming up next here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back, Jane for Libby, I'd like to hear from you if you're an essential worker waiting on your COVID vaccine, especially if you work in a factory or in a production facility. How dangerous is that environment for putting employees at risk of contracting the virus? We will focus on this aspect of the COVID vaccine rollout next and speak with a panel of experts as well.
0: Jane Brown.
1: Libby is taking the day off. We need the answers to two main questions. How scary is this third wave of COVID 19? And how should the vaccine rollout adjust to confront it most effectively? Epidemiologist Dr. Tim Sly is a professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University and a regular here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. Dr. Sly, welcome back.
8: Good afternoon, Jane.
1: Let's talk first about the case numbers. Four days running at about 3,000 cases a day in Ontario. What are your thoughts about that?
8: There's no question about it. It's been going up. Uh, We've been watching this uh, steep curve for about a month now. And it's now um, uh, way up equivalent to um, about three-quarters of the way uh, we were up in the the second wave uh, back in the, uh, the last year, about two-thirds of the way through last year. It's not showing any signs of going down. And remember, all the data that we get are always out of date. So even if we stop everything dead right now, mm-hmm. the, data, the numbers will still go up. This thing is scary. There's no question about it. The original uh, the original variants were bad enough, but we sort of lapsed a little bit into complacency there to some degree. Uh, the new uh, variants of concern, as they're called, the three major ones, uh, each come with a, a, a particularly horrible little package of uh, of goods and uh, we've now seen the P1 for a variety right from Brazil appearing in the in the Whistler area and the rest of BC.
1: What about this Tokyo variant? Uh, we were talking about that on the news this morning. Yeah, there's there's actually
8: not just a three or four. There's, there's several hundred because each one has got its own little tiny variations in in changes ad, uh, additions and subtractions in the gene code. So the actual significance of this lot, nobody really has got a full grip on it yet. For example, we we know that the one one seven uh, seems to spread a lot more rapidly, and there's some suggestion it's a bit more lethal too if you get it. The uh, the one three five one. It, its particular trick, its party trick, if you like, is to evade some of the antibodies that you may get, whether because of a recent infection or because of the vaccine. And that doesn't look good for it. Uh, we, we don't have that one uh, too much in Canada so far. But the third one, the P1, we're not quite sure what, uh, what the basket of goods that brings along, but it won't be good. Certainly, if we, if we can see the, uh, the rate of infection uh, in, uh, in B.C. at the moment, it's, it's going way up.
1: Dr. Sly, so of the three thousand cases that uh, have uh, taken place over the last four days, break those numbers down: variants versus the original virus. Well, what we're seeing—if we
8: swing back a little bit in terms of isolations of the virus—yep. What we can say is that uh, the, the, the 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 variants of concern you could count them on one hand, and percentages percentage is back in in February. Uh, As of about a week and a half ago, they were over 50%, in some areas about 60%. Mm -hmm. It does vary across the country. And that keeps on going up. In Britain, they reached about 89%, which was a new variant. In other words, the old, the original variant. uh, variety of the virus was uh, very much in the minority and this is why the spread is seen is is going so rapidly it's not the fact they might be slightly more lethal but it's that ability to spread instead of, instead of spreading on average we estimate about uh, 2.7 in other words the, the r naught. Uh, if you're an original case, you can give it to an average of about 2.6, 2.7 other people. That was the original version. The latest one, we think that could weigh up to, be up to about 3, 3.2, something like that. So you can see the, that exponential. You remember the old advertisement, you give it to two friends and yeah. they give it to two friends. and the, That's the rate of, uh, of the exponent. That's the thing we're worried about, that rate.
1: Are the majority of the variants this B one one seven from the U.K.?
8: Yes, the majority are still that. That's the that's the variant of concern. That's yeah. the one that's taken over in Canada, just like it has in almost every other country. And so far, we it, it looks as if that's up around uh 60, 65 percent in many areas. Certainly, Ontario, right. we're we're seeing that. The other problem is that it, 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 we're seeing it. The age has changed. For example, I know it's very early yet, but the P1 variant. Uh, the average age for that, the median age for that, is around 28, 29 years old. Now, just think about that. In the beginning, a year a year ago, we were looking at old-timers in old folks' homes, long-term care, and that was really where the focus was. Uh, and it was later on it moved to food-packing plants and uh, things like that. But now it's come all the way down to the variants, beginning to attack the youngster. I've just seen some feed from global uh, TV and look, we're looking at a, a packed restaurant, absolutely packed restaurant, uh, all singing and laughing and joking, not a mask in sight, and they throw the health inspectors out, saying, "Get out, get out." I mean, this—where is the mentality here? Most people are doing a really good job, but but the people in their twenties and thirties, perhaps up to even up to forties. These are, this is where we're seeing this incredible increase in incidents. And this is, uh, to some degree, the people who are shunning the wearing of masks and protection.
1: But it's also people who are working in retail and who are working in factories and don't have sick pay, right? They have more Absolutely. tenuous at, work.
8: At, at the, what you've hit it right on the head there, the, the, what we're talking about in the first example I just mentioned, our voluntary people who have decided to go there and shun any advice. What you have just mentioned is the really serious effect of people who have to work in these places as limousine drivers, taxi drivers, packing food, packing Amazon boxes or whatever it is they're packing, uh, side by side, uh, long shifts, not just in there and out again. And this is these people, well, you see, back, back, back when we really put the end to smallpox, way back in the in the, in the the late 50s, early 60s, uh, what we found out that the mass vaccination didn't really work in a country like Bangladesh, which is one of the last countries. But what did work was what they called ring vaccination. In other words, you, you spent a lot of energy to find out where the virus was, the smallpox virus was, and then you immediately descended on that individual, that family, the neighbors and the ring around them, and you intensively vaccinated that group. And that's how smallpox was brought to an end and eventually eliminated. And that's
1: that's what we need to be doing right here and now.
8: Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. we need to be vaccinating the people who are most vulnerable and don't really have the choice to do anything else about it. So this is why rapid testing, which you and I have talked about and we talked about with Libby since last June, the uh, government uh, brought in, I think, something like 37 million rapid tests. They're in warehouses somewhere. I think has used about 1% or 2% of them. We've had them for months and months. Why on earth hasn't been brought out? Britain has just announced in the last 24 hours that it's going to have these things uh, used right across the country. Everybody being tested, schools and stores and shops and everything else, so once or twice a week just to get a handle on where the virus is. And we should all have been doing that months ago, especially with this virus, where we don't know who's got it and who doesn't have it. Remember, half the people who have the virus don't have any signs or symptoms, and they're spreading it around. So rapid testing, even though it may not be 100% effective, at least we'll get a finger on the pulse there.
1: Doctor, I'd like to speak with uh, Sharon in Brampton. She's joined us on the show here. Um, along the lines of what we were just talking about, the, the most vulnerable, those who are working in factories, don't have sick pay. Uh, Sharon, what's your situation? Hi, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. Um, so I'm a self
5: employed personal support worker. And because there is no, we're not included in any of the phases, I'm not eligible for a vaccine right now.
1: You're not eligible until it gets to your age, which has nothing to do with what you do for a living.
5: Exactly. So um, I had my test booked. I went to go for it and I was turned away. So now I'm losing some of my clients because the families um, are saying that I'm not vaccinated and they don't want to take any other precautions, even though I wear all my PPE. So I'm losing some of my clients that I've earned on my own because they don't want me in the home.
1: Sharon, I want to get Dr. Sly's reaction to your situation. Dr. Sly, this almost seems hard to believe.
8: Yeah, Sharon is a, a public-facing person, and I, I'll bet anything you like, you're not just facing one person. You've got several people that you care for, look after, and attend. So your potential to spread it, should you become infected by it, and we don't know. You may be infected at the moment. We, you have no way to tell. So if you were tested and you found out that you were positive, at least we'd know. You could then stop seeing your your clients, your, your patients, and you could be uh, isolated, and, and so on and so on. At the moment, it's a uh, it's a, it's a gamble. It's a wide open. So people, we really need to divide people up into two groups. We've done very well on the first group. That is the, the most vulnerable because they're likely to die. We, we tackled them a year ago. But people like Sharon, PSWs, and uh, anybody facing the public directly, this is the potential for them is not necessarily to die immediately, although that, that number is increasing rapidly with the new variants, but the potential here is to pass it on to others. And so we can't forget these people. These people should also be at the the top of their, uh, you know, necessary uh, priority list as well. Absolutely.
1: I just want to ask you, I just have a minute left with you, Dr. Sly, and then I'll let you go. But uh, why would it be in the virus's interest or this variant of the virus to try to take down people who are relatively young and relatively healthy?
8: Oh well, the virus isn't really a living thing. It's a, it's a little lump of RNA and a little protein lipid shell, and its only purpose is to reproduce. So, given an opportunity, it reproduces. If there's no opportunity, as in as in a uh, as in a, uh, herd immunity, it it won't be able to reproduce. So, it's got no intent, no no evolutionary um, uh, purpose at all. The fact is, though that if if a virus is able to reproduce say three times as 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 well as the next virus, that virus will become the dominant one, and it'll eventually move along until the the- the the, the herd that is the population becomes uh, um uh, mainly immune to it, and then it'll sort of fizzle out largely. It may become endemic among the few people who haven't been vaccinated or and so on. But this it has no purpose. You can't sort of look at it like that and look at it.
1: Okay. Uh, okay. Well, then, no, that does make sense. It, it's most interested in making itself carry on. Exactly. Right. Uh, Always an interesting conversation, Dr. Timothy Sly. Thank you for your time.
8: My pleasure. Anytime. Bye-bye.
1: Dr. Sly is a professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University and a regular here, lucky us, on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. Jane for Libby. And coming up next, you've heard his stories. You've seen his stories. He is a critical care doctor at Michael Guerin Hospital. Dr. Michael Warner is up next with his call on how the vaccine program needs to be changed.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Nimer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown.
1: I am pleased to welcome Dr. Michael Warner to Fight Back. He is the medical director of critical care at Michael Guerin Hospital in East York. Dr. Warner, thank you for making time for us. I know how busy you are.
9: Thanks for having me.
1: I was uh, running a couple of clips of you this morning on the morning news here on Zoomer Radio, and and what resonated with me is that, and you said it very simply, the current vaccine rollout is based on the way the virus was conducting itself in the second wave and not the third wave. Can you explain that for our audience if they missed it?
9: Well, the disease that we're dealing with now on the front lines is is a completely different disease from what we faced and what our patients faced in wave one and wave two. Every patient, you know, with very few exceptions, has one of the variants, usually one one seven. far more infectious, affects patients in a different way. They're much sicker, um, they're much younger, and almost by definition, none of my patients would qualify for vaccination based on the criteria that were set around the time that wave two was just beginning, which is when, you know, our current rollout plan was conceived. So just like any business or any anyone who wants to be nimble, you have to pivot. And we need to recognize that the fires are in the factories. They're in the poor postal codes. They're in the apartment buildings where essential workers live. And that's where the vaccines need to go. They don't need to go to Young and Eglinton so that well-to-do people could stand in line for three hours to get a shot at a pharmacy. Uh, because those people can minimize their exposure risk, whereas my patients, because of the nature of the work they do, cannot. And they need to be protective.
1: Without um, without compromising security concerns, in your ICU at Michael Garron right now, what is the makeup of the patients? And are you primarily younger now?
9: Um, you know, ten minutes before we got on, I just admitted a patient in their thirties uh, to the to the ICU to go along with the other patient in their thirties, to go along with the other patient in their twenties, and then two in their forties, all with COVID nineteen. Wow! Uh, so. Uh, I have no one in their 80s uh, with COVID-19 right now, and uh, if you were to pull intensivists at other hospitals in the GTA, they may not have the exact same answer, but it would be a similar uh, trend.
1: Now, you have a number of suggestions. Uh, you're calling on the program to be changed, tweaked, however you want to word it. Uh, this morning, Mayor John Tory seemed to be quite receptive. I know he has very little say in what happens across the province, but certainly he's in charge of the biggest city. Are you starting to get some traction in terms of response from the government, from the Chief Medical Officer of Health, uh, listening to your concerns?
5: Well, let's
9: be clear. I mean, I I have no influence other than putting things out there in the public and letting public opinion, you know, ebb and flow. Um, You know, I'm telling patient stories, including stories of, you know, the wife of a factory worker who was forced to go to work despite being in the midst of a COVID outbreak, who's now dead. Uh, And she was in her mid-40s. I told that story and and it's kind of gone all over the internet. So I have no idea what Dr. David Williams is thinking. Uh, All I know is that at our vaccination center in East York, we're not allowed to vaccinate people under the age of fifty. Like, under, even if they work right, right. Yeah. And, and that's nonsensical, right? Because um, you know, my patients who are in their twenties, thirties, forties, and fifties, they're the ones who work in the factories that create the goods that you have in your house that could deliver, get delivered by Amazon by the people who work, you know, in that industry who that get fulfilled in a warehouse in Peel. I mean all those people are the people who are actually prioritized to be vaccinated last. In phase two, they're in the cannot work from home category uh, group two, which is June and July. We don't just need to tweak this. We need to flip it on its head right now.
1: Well, it was interesting, Dr. Timothy Sly uh, was just on with us, and he was referencing uh, when smallpox was a thing, and how they got a handle on smallpox by vaccinating everyone around the individual who got it, and that's how they attacked it, and that's how they they basically got rid of it.
9: Yeah, you know, I'm not an epidemiologist or an expert of vaccines, but, you know, if if, if you live with an 80-year-old, if you live with your parents and they're 80 years old and you're taken into a vaccination center and you live in an apartment building with your children, that entire family should be vaccinated because you're the essential worker that's going to the factory that's going to bring it home to infect everybody. So I think we just have to, we have to be a little smarter about this and not be so regimented. You're in this category. You're in that category. I mean, we see people not showing up to get their vaccines, right? Whereas my patients are desperate. And it's not being offered to them. And uh, that needs to change. And we can't actually wait. Like, we can't wait till we see the data. Because we're seeing it in real life, in real time, in the ICU. And, and it's crystal clear, at least to me, what needs to be done. And hopefully, there'll be political will to do so. Because that means other people will not have access to vaccinations because we have limited supply. But they can minimize their exposure risk by staying home.
1: Dr. Warner, we've seen in recent days um, a number of clinics, hospital clinics across Toronto, have reduced the age to uh, as young as 50 for eligibility for a vaccine, where things are changing fairly quickly in terms of being optimistic. Could you see that age being dropped to all adults in certain postal codes being able to get there? Yeah.
9: You know, I think Pfizer is 16 and up. I mean, let's make it 18 and up just so that people, you know, know, children aren't working. But They should just, like, just let anybody be vaccinated. They should bring the vaccines to the factories, to the warehouse. Um, Have community leaders um, who speak the language of the workers who are there explain why this vaccine is a good idea for them. Um, You know, we, we need mass vaccination sites as well because of operational characteristics. They're much more efficient, but this can't be a pilot project. This has to be our focus. We have to focus on those who can't minimize their exposure risk and also... Close all businesses that are non-essential. I just put out a video about another one of my patients, early 30s, works in the financial services industry, got COVID from a coworker who he was sharing an office with. He didn't want to go to work, but his his boss said, you got to put space time at the office. Really? Well, guess what? He needed to be intubated. He got a blood clot in his lungs. (gasps) And four months, four weeks after he presented with COVID, today was the first time he spoke. He's completely healthy. And that's just intolerable. So it's not just essential workers. It's non-essential workers. Like, this is really serious. Wave 3 is different. The variant is different. And people who are otherwise healthy with their entire life ahead of them are getting really sick.
1: I have a lot of teachers in my family, and none of them are able to get their vaccines yet because they're not 50. They're not 55. Um, they're a little bit younger. Um and they're really, really worried. I'm, they're doing everything they can to protect themselves in the classroom, but how big of a concern is this variant for teachers?
9: I mean, if we want to keep schools open, and I, I don't have a position on that, teachers and support staff should be vaccinated. They could do the, They could do everybody in the first two days of April break, right? We have enough vaccines to do that. Just get it done. Imagine, you know, I'm a doctor. I work in the hospital, and I have, you know, exposure risk. Imagine if... You know, I wasn't allowed to be vaccinated. Right. uh, But I was told to go to work. I I wear my PP and and I was supposed to be good enough. Like, that would be intolerable. Just because kids hopefully don't get sick doesn't mean that teachers can't get sick and bring it home to their families. It hasn't been proven. And we don't know how much impact schools have on community spread and vice versa. We just hope that schools are safe, but we haven't proven they are teachers, of course, should be vaccinated. Like, now. Let's just, we have enough vaccine, let's just get it done.
1: And what about this variant? Which age group? uh, I mean, it may be just the evidence that you've surmised from your ICU, but what age group is it going after?
9: Well, I mean, statistically, when you vaccinate more older people, the average age will go down. So part of that is, 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 and there's that impact. Mm -hmm. But in Wave 1 and Wave 2, I didn't see 20, 30, and 40-year-olds really at all, Um, you know, And now, oh, it's another 30-something-year-old. Okay, like it's becoming routine, and uh, that's really frightening uh, because that should never be routine. Because Those are the people who are out in the world who are interacting. They're working as cashiers at dollar stores. They're driving for rideshare apps. They're working in factories, and uh, they have high exposure risk over and over and over again. And because it's more infectious, they're just more likely to get it.
1: I know you're not a political figure, Dr. Warner, but certainly you are, you know, you are in some ways the face of what's going on with this third wave and you have been all the way along. What could what can we do to encourage the government to change the way the vaccine is being rolled out or, you know, I know individually we can protect ourselves and protect others by the hand washing and distancing and face masks. What else can we be doing?
9: Well, you know, I have delivered this message directly to the premier. And uh, so he knows what I think. And uh, I think he has to weigh a lot of different things that I don't have to think about. Um, And I think the public also needs to take some responsibility. Like, nobody is forcing you to go to Yorkdale and and expose that poor clerk at the checkout to face after face after face. Right? That's your decision. And you're doing that on the backs of essential workers and non-essential workers. They should be paid not to work. And people should just stay at home if they can. Uh, and make the premier and his cabinet ministers know that public, the public is behind the plan to support essential workers. P- politicians, you know, they want to be reelected. And if public opinion says that's the right thing to do now, they would likely follow it. So that message needs to get out from the public. They need to organize. They need to share. Write your MPP. Write your MP. Um, call your local city councillor, etc.
1: We have received the message. Dr. Warner, thank you for your time. Take care. Dr. Michael Warner is Medical Director of Critical Care at Toronto's Michael Guerin Hospital. Jane for Libby, and make sure you come back and join Fight Back tomorrow for the always spicy strategy panel.
0: (laughs) You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio.